Welcome to Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Hi Susan, how are you this fine Hi, day? Simon. Well, I'm good now that I'm talking to you. Oh. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. I know, I know. So let's, uh, rather than just, you know, sat here flattering each other, <laughs> as, as, as much as I enjoy that, and who have we got on today's show? Well, um, I'm really excited about this particular guest, Glenna Crooks. Um, Glenna Crooks is a, a CEO founder of a health strategy company, but she has this long, illustrious career in education and health. She was at one point in time the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And she told us at one point that she served not one, not two, but three presidents. Um, she was then the global VP of Merck's vaccine business, mm. multiple author, uh, author of multiple books, adjunct professor at both Drexel University and University of Pennsylvania, numerous awards. Um, well, Glenna was just amazing to have a conversation with. She was. Let's let's dive into it then. Yes. Glenna, welcome. Uh, it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Uh, so you're a health strategist and a policy consultant, uh, an entrepreneur, a vaccine expert. You know, there are so many things where we looked... Um, for ways to describe you uh we've got a phd as a founder and ceo of strategic health policy international inc formerly a presidential appointee responsible for u.s public health policy and the then global vp of Merck's vaccine business is that right um you know you're solving tough health problems for businesses governments globally you're the author of multiple books you've received numerous awards including um this one this is a good one being named a disruptive woman to watch we love that and your brand promise after years of experience is serving governments companies and organizations globally helping them solve problems to improve health and well-being i mean how did all that what's your origin story how did that all start we were fascinated you know, I wish I could say that I had planned this career, <laughs> but I didn't. Um, I um, probably if I had been born uh, in a slightly later time frame, I might have become an engineer. Mm. Um, I um, have an intuitive understanding of math and physics. Um, I just see how things work. But um, in the era that I grew up, of course, um, there weren't many of those opportunities available to women. If you were going to be in a workplace in a professional setting at all, it was because you were a nurse or a teacher. And I've known one thing since I was six years old, which is that I did not want to be either one of those. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, my family, however, um, um, it kept encouraging me to go into education. It's not something that I wanted to do, but luckily I had a, an uncle who had a fishing buddy who was a school psychologist. I was interested again in the way that things work, including the human mind and human relationships. And so that was as um, close to education as my family could tolerate and as far enough away from education as I could tolerate. So 
I did a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in educational psychology and became one of the first of a cohort of school psychologists who were not trained to um, test and label children, but who were trained to change the system around children so that children could benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that was a, a really challenging time because at the point in which I entered the workforce, children with special needs in the United States did not have a legal right to an education. So they weren't in school. Um, I worked in a community and found, for example, uh, a 10-year-old boy who was um, not in school because he had spina bifida and as a result lacked bowel and bladder control. Now, he could ride a horse, he could ride a bike, but he just wasn't in school for that reason. So I had to find alternative provisions to educate him or actually very distressingly, uh, one 17-year-old young man who in the vernacular of the day, everybody thought was quote-unquote retarded. He was really deaf. In 17 years, nobody had noticed that this child could not hear. So um, I found ways um, to care for him in the community, uh, to connect him with an elderly couple who were deaf and knew sign language. In fact, their dog knew sign language. Um, So that rather than having to go away to a state school, which was hundreds of miles away, we could begin to educate him within within the community. So that was the start of it for me. and by the way, because I was successful in making some changes, it showed me that it, that's possible, that one person can make a difference. And ever since then, it's been sort of one step after another to do more of the same. That's amazing. So in telling the stories of the lived experiences of children and these, these, these children who had unique stories to tell. I mean, the, the, what you just recounted was amazing. So that was the through line that basically blended or, or gave you the, the launching pad for being a school, from being a school psychologist to literally understanding human behavior and having that be the catalyst for change in healthcare. You know, in a strange way, yes. Um, You know, for one thing, um, I came to find that if you can relate to the five-year-old and everybody, you'll be fine. (laughs) Because everybody has one, including the CEO of a major corporation or presidents of the United States, and I've worked with three of them. (laughs) So it's um, there's that part of us that we all need to take account of. And I think it was my own experiences as a kid. I didn't like school. Um, I uh, made a promise to myself then that if I ever had a chance to make life better for children, that I would do that. Um, And I'm glad to say that I've kept that promise, not only in the work that I did in healthcare, but then in education. Um, uh, Before that, I mean, um, some people might be familiar with an IEP. Uh, It's an individual education plan, which is created for children who have special needs to be sure that parents and teachers are communicating and understand what a child really needs. I'm one of the creators of that. I mean, Uh in those days, that's the way. My job was to figure out how does this child learn? And therefore, how do we have to teach this child? And I was so struck 
all the time when I had the meeting with the parents and the teachers, how much they cared and how much they wanted. And then in addition to that, I started to see that if you can rally around children, the entire community comes together. Mm -hmm. Um, Just I'll tell one other story. One of the schools that I worked in was a very old school with hardwood floors and very tall ceilings. I'm sure you've seen some in pictures of, of, of schools. We don't have a lot of them around anymore that look like this. They're more modern. But even I, when I went into the school, I thought, how do they handle the noise? The hard-soled shoes walking down the, down the hallways, it was loud. It was loud in the classrooms. And, um, and I could see the wear and tear that that was having on the teachers. What I did was engage the local um, business community of of small businesses, mostly uh, businesses owned by men in that era, and I saw how much they cared for kids. Um, They underwrote the cost of getting uh, indoor-outdoor carpeting for those classrooms. Um, uh, And I remember I went into the first grade class once with carpet samples of different colors, and I would hold up the color and I would say to the children, tell me how this makes you feel. And I held up one that was red and a little boy said, Ooh, I want to run on that. And I thought, okay, it's not going to be red. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I looked for the most calming color and I believe it was blue. Um, When we put that carpet down, it transformed that classroom and that teacher, that teacher said she was going to retire at the end of the year until this carpet was installed and then she said she realized what was wearing on her and she opted to stay or another thing that we did you know uh, we didn't have a term like adhd at the time it had not entered our lexicon but i could see that some children were distracted so we got those huge appliance um, boxes cardboard boxes that you know that like your refrigerator your stove would come in we brought those into a classroom and we created carols for those children that they could decorate like their own little offices. And again, it helped the children to settle. So it was, there was this combination of making an observation, seeing what people needed, telling the story to engage others in crafting a solution, giving it a try and seeing how it worked. And then, and then going from there. Now I have to say three years of that and I burned out. Mm -hmm. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. I went back to school. Um, and this time I got a PhD. It was a very unusual program. In fact, it doesn't exist anymore. It allowed people to study at any school in the university as long as you could convince your doctoral study committee and the dean of that school that you had a serious organized course of study. And I can talk my way into anything. (laughs) So... Um, um, I mean, as you know, from my bio, I once talked a whole neighborhood group of kids into putting on a circus in my backyard. So (laughs) we loved that. We saw that on your LinkedIn profile and we just, we just loved that. Um, well, I'm a boomer, you know, so there were 50 kids on my block and, um, only three of us were girls. So that was a lot of of boyish energy and I had a fair amount of that myself so that's how we decided to put it to use I did this by the way without telling my mother Uh, she didn't know this was happening until everybody started showing up in the backyard that day (laughs) it's a it's a testament to her patience and her forbearance that I'm here to tell the tale (laughs) that's wonderful so um 
so what I did was take all of the previous work that I had done as a educational psychologist, as a school psychologist, and I interf and also all of my undergraduate work in anthropology and sociology. And then I interfaced that with the health sciences and law. So as I tell people, I am not a doctor and I am not a lawyer. I am uniquely qualified to do nothing except what I do. I organize chaos and I solve complicated problems hmm. because I can see it from all perspectives. I can put myself in the shoes of everybody who's sitting around the table or might otherwise care about the issue and come at it to create a solution that is win, win, win um, um, all around. So, um, and, and always throughout, um, yes, the interests and the needs of children have been uppermost in my mind and my heart. But once you've thought about children, it all, and you learn about others in the world, it makes you sensitive to the needs of people who are vulnerable in other ways, either because they have a serious disease condition or because they've had a serious accident or um, now increasingly because they are an aging population that no longer has the sort of community and large family supports mm -hmm. that were common when we all lived in small villages or we all had big families. So that, that sort of thread throughout is, you know, that sensitivity that I acquired to to the needs of children, to be to listen to children, to be gentle with children, has has um, continued throughout everything that I've done with other populations. It's it's fascinating, and I, I love this idea of you know the five year old you planning and executing a neighborhood circus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can I? Oh, let me tell you a little story. God, please do, <laughs> please do. <laughs> um. When, um, when I was in government, there was a woman, a nurse at the National Cancer Institute who noticed that um, at the NIH Clinical Center, where, which is a major hospital for those of people who don't know, it's a, we do research there and patients are cared for there, um, that there was a tendency among the staff not to wash their hands when they were making rounds and seeing the children. And what she also observed is that their colleagues and peers would not challenge them on it. Um, but a child could be taught to do that. So she took a cartoon page picture of a teddy bear with a little red heart, um, called it Mr. T, I think, and had the children color it. And as they were taught the children to ask any adult who came into their room, whether they had washed their hands. Mm -hmm. Now this was important because more, more children with cancer die from infections mm -hmm. than die from cancer. And hand-washing is the first line of defense. And my goodness, we especially, we've known that since Semmelweis in the healthcare industry, but none of the typical instructional, here's the data, um, uh, was working to change behavior, but a child would. A child would ask, and the, and the adult would change their behavior accordingly. Fast forward, somebody found an actual teddy bear that looked like that picture. It was a beautiful, high-quality teddy bear. A foundation was set up to fundraise from the private sector. And um, I remember two strategies. One, the secretary had a luncheon 
I think Margaret Heckler was secretary at the time. She had a luncheon, invited all these corporate executives to come, and every one of these, and mostly male at the time, executive carried that teddy bear home on the airplane. (laughs) All right? The other strategy to get donations was um, we would work in collaboration with the executive secretary of like the CEO of a major corporation. And we would put that teddy bear in his chair behind his desk so that that was what he saw when he came up and Mm -hmm. came to work in the morning. All right. The donations flooded in so that we could get teddy bears to share with first graders across the country to try to improve hand washing within schools in among first graders. So when I think about those men who were running multi, multi multi-million, even billion dollar corporations at the time and how they melted (laughs) when they saw that teddy bear, I think there's no more bit of data to validate what I've just said, that there's a big five-year-old in front of, in, in, oh, inside of each yeah. one of those, of, of us. And if we can connect with that, we'll be okay. That's amazing. So, you know, you, you talk about organizing chaos and solving complex problems, but it's this, I, I keep hearing this storytelling, mm. this being your superpower. Um, you know, and, and you've actually, you've actually created programs and, and trademarked methodologies for, for imparting this kind of skill to your clients in their, in your strategy consultancy is, am I right there? Is storytelling your superpower? Um, I've never thought about it that way, but I'm going to think about it more, and and maybe there's a hint here. Uh, I just uh, about four weeks ago committed to training with two professional actors, uh, Michael and Amy Port. Um, one of them trained at NYU, the other at Yale, and they were professional actors. Um, you might have seen them in in different sitcoms and movies, um, but now what they do is train speakers. And one of the things I want to do is learn to tell stories better. Because what I've seen in my work is that stories are the best way to teach. Uh, I've written a number of uh, books and um, about dry subjects like health policy. And one of the challenges that I had is that I saw it all as a story. And so the question for me is, how do you enter the story? And then how do you move people through the story? so that they understand the underlying points or that they learn the underlying lessons, which then they can apply um, for themselves. And I'll just, um, I want to come back to what you're talking about because I think what you're mentioning specifically is centricity principle, uh, which is not something I created as much as it's something that I observed. Um, And what I did was codify what I had observed. So I'll come back to that in just a minute Um, uh, and say that stories, and perhaps unconsciously even for me, have become an important part of my work. When I taught a graduate class in public health strategy at um, Drexel University um, in 2021, uh, I um, 
required that all of the students analyze a piece of fiction based on the strategic planning principles that I was teaching in the course. Now, other faculty said, why are you doing that? And I said, well, that's because I want them to see strategy everywhere they look. And every time they go to a movie or every time they read a book, they're going to be seeing elements of strategy that they can then incorporate into other things that they do. And I want to tell you, I'm not the only one who thought to do this. Um, the Army War College uses fiction to teach strategy, too. So one of the um, pieces of resources that I gave the students so that they could pick their own piece of fiction <clears throat> was the list of the 100 fictional stories that are read by people at the Army War College. You might be surprised to know that Yertle the Turtle is among them. <laughs> That's great. That is um, great. And, and I think that sort of harkens to one of the things that I enjoy tracking as a social scientist is what are the stories we're telling our children? What are the fairy tales that we're telling one another? And how are those functioning to teach us? So back to centricity principle. What I, I've been an armchair student of other people who've been effective in the world of policy and strategy. So I started keeping track and analyzing when something worked when they tried to create a change, but they were not the boss. So it's not like a military situation where a senior officer would tell you what to do and you would salute and you would do it, exactly. But when you're in a non-hierarchical situation, like working with a Congress or the administration or having to collaborate with a community group um, to get something done, what did people do to create the change? And what worked? And when they, when they succeeded. And when they didn't succeed, well, what was missing? Was something missing? So over the course of hmm, probably 10 years, I kept track and I was seeing the pattern. Now I teach this explicitly to companies, usually to multidisciplinary groups, people from marketing and sales and from R&D and the Washington offices and the policy people. And what's interesting is when I finish going through the model, I always require, by the way, that they have a real problem they want to solve. And they can learn this methodology and solve the problem within 90 minutes. They'll have their strategy. All right. I ask them to have a backup that they want to solve um, because this is highly replicable and they can solve the second problem in 30 minutes. Right. Now, the reason that it's so easy to learn is it's the way we live with one another. Nobody's made it explicit. That's what I did. I just pointed it out. Here's the steps. So people will, I will finish and they will say, well, yeah, this makes sense. And I will say, yes, I've been watching you. And, and I will say that this model, I'm, I'm going to talk just a bit about stories in this model. But this model works. Um, it, worked, it, it worked before I went to Merck and understood the value of marketing and market research. Once I was at um, uh, Merck and I could see what my sales and marketing colleagues were doing, I was able to further enhance the model. And, um, and so here a bit about stories. Um, there are um, two, three places in the model where stories are important. Um, what I say in Centricity Principle is, um, first of all, you have to have a very clear target of what you want to change. And hearts and minds is not on the list. 
we're talking about behavior change. Um, I want enough congressmen and senators to vote in a particular way. I want a policy setting board of directors in an organization to decide the following things. I mean, uh, this, that, this, that kind of a change it has to be an explicit, observable human behavior. Well, the next thing you do is you make a list of all of the reasons why you will fail, all of the barriers, what's going to get in the way, things on the outside, like, you know, we don't even know who to call yet. Uh, we don't have enough information, things on the inside, like the lawyers aren't going to let us do it. It's outside the bounds of compliance. Uh, I've got too many other things on my plate. What I have found um, is that the barrier is not really important. You need to know about it, but then you can put it aside. And I had the hardest time understanding why. Why would that possibly have worked? And I had the hardest time explaining to my clients about why they should do it, even though it, they were going to be able to put the, that barrier aside. And then finally, the story came to me. It was Rumpelstiltskin. So if you know the story, the not the tale, the ogre steals the mom's baby. And in order to get the baby back, she has to learn his secret name. Now, fairy tales are transmitted wisdom from one generation to the next. And I thought, what's the wisdom they're trying to transmit here? And I think it's this. When you know the name of the demon, you control it. It doesn't blindside you anymore. It doesn't knock you off your center. So when I think about, for example, Abby Myers, who is a mother of three children, a housewife from Connecticut, uh, her three children had rare diseases. Uh, she I don't think Abby went to college. But Abby changed the face of rare disease research and regulatory um, uh, requirements and so on on three continents because of her activities. Um, that's stunning. You know, if Abby had said, oh, I can't go, I'm just a housewife from Connecticut and I don't have a PhD and I'm not a research scientist, um, we would not have seen the change we have seen since Abby's efforts beginning in the early 1980s. Um, to create a better world for the people who've got rare diseases. I mean, that's, that's stunning. So that's the value of, that's one place where story is valuable in that centricity principle model. Now, the other place that it's valuable is that there are five things you have to orchestrate. Um, uh, information, messages, relationships, catalyst, and then resources. Now, in information, when I, this is hard to teach, by the way, the, the first piece, information, is really hard to teach within the biopharmaceutical sector because there are two kinds of information. There are statistics and there are stories. And our highly technical scientific um, industry, we love statistics and we think that statistics are going to win the day and they never do. It's the, it's the story. It's the heart that makes the decision. And then the head goes looking for the data to back it up. So I try to get people to have these really compelling stories that they can tell. It's, it's hard. It's not the way they've been trained. Uh, that's not their default position. Um, but that, but I, I warn them that, that if they don't do that, and there are examples, regardless of how well this industry and biopharmaceuticals has served the world, you know, a presidential candidate's story about older people not being able to afford their medicines and eating cat food instead. 
can just wipe out all kinds of goodwill that the industry might otherwise have. Um, the other place uh, where a story is important is in your message. The, that second component of um, the centricity principle. You've got to be able to tell a story. One of the challenges we have is that um, the most important decisions that are going to be made, that we care about, things we care about, are going to be made by non-experts when the experts are not in the room. So that means you've got to have a clear message and stories are so clear and so compelling. So to couple, to, to put together a story with a couple of other phrases is really important for uh, creating that change you want. Now, the final third part then is with catalyst. Catalysts are people and events who can, um, who create energy that creates change. Um, you know, when Jackie Kennedy, for example, um, gave, um, uh, had several miscarriages and gave birth to a very premature, uh, baby, uh, that baby did not survive for very long. That was catalytic. Uh, what that did was lead to the creation of better, um, neonatal intensive care research and units and so on. And so now the United States has the best low birth weight survival rate in the world because of that. When Betty Ford was diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, that's another example of how um, I, it be, became a catalyst for informing the medical profession and women about the importance of mammograms and early detection. Now, um, uh, one of my recent experiences, um, the uh, I was working with a group of emergency room physicians and neurologists, and the the problem we were working on was stroke. And what is the nature of stroke care for patients in the United States? And is it good enough? And how do we make it better? And as we were talking about this, and I was thinking about Catalyst, I said to these uh, physicians, I said, um, some important person is going to have a stroke. I don't know when, but you can pretty much predict it's going to happen. So are you ready for when that happens to communicate, to tag on to that story, um, which will make the news? Um, all the things a person should do, like call 911 and we'll get to us fast because that's, that's, this is a brain attack and we can protect you if you get to us, but you have to do it quickly. Well, I hate to be right about some things, but I was right about this one uh, because it was six weeks later that former President Gerald Ford had a stroke at the Republican National Convention here in Philadelphia. All eyes were on the news that night. And what happened? Cardiologists went on and said, lower your cholesterol. So it was a missed opportunity. So um, uh, one of the things when I do this training, I not only, um, you know, talk about the role of stories when they are trying to change their strategy, or implement a strategy to create a change, but also stories have a large part of how I convince them that they should. Because here's a story, um, you know, I mean, Abby Myers was a superhero in what she did. Who would have thought, you know, that is, I'm, I'm going to be speaking to the mother of a child with a rare disease this afternoon. I mean, and, um, you know, um, you know, she probably doesn't know um, how Abby Myers, Myers blazed the trail um, decades before her, before even she was even born. Yeah, those stories are important. Um, this is fascinating. And, uh, you know, I want to segue a little bit into something 
that I learned about you when I met you um, at a Green Book uh, IAX Health Conference last year. Um, lots of people have one impressive resume, but you have two impressive resumes because you have to have a separate one that dealt with your expertise as in the area of vaccines, and that was that was your work at Merck. Um, but I was. I was fascinated in the session you gave at the IAX Health Conference, and it, it actually ties back to your to the story I didn't know, which was about the hand washing. Um, you talked about vaccine hesitancy, and a study that you you conducted, um, and vaccine hesitancy, of course, has been you know in the news a lot because of COVID. Um, talk to us a little bit about, well, certainly about your background in how you became this vaccine expert, but then tell us a little bit about the study you did specifically around COVID vaccine hesitancy. I've never told anybody this story before, but I have thought about this, uh, that perhaps my work in vaccines is me doing penance for something that I did when I was about five and a half years old, six years old. I said I could talk my way into anything. I talked my way out of something. And that was a polio shot. <laughs> so I was a kid when polio hit. Um, and uh, I remember the summer that we couldn't uh, play outside with our friends because of it. And I remember when um, the polio vaccine became available and my mother took me and my younger brother to the local civic center, to essentially a mass vaccination center to get the shot. And I convinced my mother that they probably had a shortage of the vaccine, which is pretty much the case for all vaccines. I guess I knew more about vaccines even then than I knew. Um, and that it would be much more important to protect my younger brother because he was younger and far more vulnerable than me. Um, I mean, the bottom line is I didn't want a shot. Well, I was an average kid. No kid wants a shot. I don't. I think I succeeded in talking myself, in talking my mom out of that. Uh, so maybe that's why I spent so much time in it. When I was in, but I mean, all jokes aside, um, although that's a true one. Uh, when I was in the administration, a number of challenges came our way. Um, the first thing we noticed is that there was a dwindling supply of manufacturers in the United States. Uh, there were one time 12 different companies, for example, making flu vaccine. We were down to one. Um, and, um, and, and that our supplies were really at risk for that reason. So I was, the first step was to, to, was to um, uh, propose a new idea to the Congress, which was a stockpile of vaccines. So that was one thing. The second thing that happened then was um, uh, a Pulitzer, what, what, ha what did become a Pulitzer Prize winning um, uh, show called DTP Roulette, which characterized um, injuries that children had supposedly received from the DTP vaccine. Uh, at, which at the time was a wholesale vaccine. We don't use that anymore in this country. Uh, we use a much more modern version that's, that it does not use the wholesale, but it is um, incredibly um, less reactive. Um, now, uh, what was interesting about that situation is that it was strategically timed to air 
when all of the U.S. senior health policy officials were out of the country. WHO was having a meeting, PAHO was having, in Geneva, PAHO was meeting in Mexico. So the secretary, the assistant secretary, the surgeon general, they were all going to be out of the country when that aired. We didn't know that at the time, but I sort of saw rumblings that something was going on and um, got um, our government staff to look into it further. And that's when we got information from uh, folks on the Hill that this was going to happen. So we were ready with our standby statements, but then things kept happening. Um, this was when HIV burst onto the scene. And at the time, the hepatitis B vaccine was made with blood products. So there was a concern, did HIV contaminate the vaccine? No, it didn't. And by the way, we don't use that old technology anymore either. Um, so that's, that's not to be a worry there. So there were a whole set of issues that arose. Um, parents today would know as well that uh, when they pay for a vaccine, that there is a tax which is placed on it uh, for a no-fault compensation system. If your child does happen to be injured uh, because, uh, or you suspect that they have been by a vaccine, you no longer have to go to court and prove that and prove negligence. You just say so, and there is an automatic payout from this government fund. Um, that was actually developed by one of my staff. Um, and um, uh, so there was that work. Now, moving on then, I was in a variety of other situations where vaccine and immunization matters became important. I worked with pharmacists for a while. And one of the things we knew is that we needed to have more widespread flu immunization in this country, but um, physicians' offices aren't capable of delivering all those doses. So the alternative was to consider pharmacies as a place to do that. Um, so I was part of building that because of that, uh, the expertise I already had. And of course, now you know, you can go into a pharmacy and, and, and get a vaccine. Um, that's that's uh, more convenient for patients and it's, and it's uh, taking some of the load off of uh, a clinician's office. Now, then when I went to Merck, I, I didn't think I would be working on vaccines. I was in policy. But um, uh, I was appointed to a strategic planning team by our chairman to determine whether we would stay in the business or not. We came very close to getting out of it. Now, we decided to stay, but to do it differently, um, to take it out of the pharma uh, division because it's a different business and to focus on it there. So I worked, um, I was sent over to help set that up and that's how I became the global VP eventually. Now, the COVID study that we did was a pilot. Um, uh, a mutual friend in market research introduced Bill Bloom, a fast focus and I. He has a very interesting methodology for doing market research. What we did was apply my most recent research about support networks. And what we looked at was um, when it came time to decide whether you, or you would get a vaccine, COVID for yourself or for your child, which were which one of the eight networks that I have defined in my research are you going to be um, turning to for trusted advice? Um, and um, that first level of research that we did was both reassuring for me at a certain level, but also surprising and worrisome. Here's what we found. What we found um, is that across the board, um, the most trusted network was what I call the health network. And that's comprised of people you might think of, physicians, pharmacists, so on, nurses, for example. Um, however, 
Um, Bill's methodology allows uh, us to look at subgroups, and so we did, and, and allows us to look at the strength, the passion uh, that people feel about the choices that they're making. What we found is that the strong passion of white men was overshadowing the voice of all other men, black, Hispanic, and Asian, and all women, regardless of ethnicity. Now for them, the most trusted network was their family network. And for most of them then, the health network was the second most trusted, unless you were a black woman. Black women ranked their family network first, their, um, uh, uh, their, their education network second, and their um, health network third. And of course, if you understand the um, um, uh, challenges that black women have faced in this country, uh, because this was just a US study, uh, uh, and the levels of discrimination that they have faced, the poor outcomes for maternal mortality in childbirth and so on, you can understand why they would not be as trusting of their health network. Now, um, What's also interesting about that study is where there's controversy because Bill's methodology also picks up that. And um, the employer, net, the career network and your employer work and workplace or your spiritual network were the most controversial. So in retrospect now, it allows me as a policymaker to think about if we had only known that before we pressed ahead on uh, workplace mandates, um, uh, for example, uh, that might have helped us to um, uh, to soften um, some of the resistance and to convince people that, uh, about the need and the value of being vaccinated. Now, we did a subsequent study um, looking at uh, the second time then of who within a family people trusted the most. And what we found, probably not, well, a little surprising to me, I thought that um, parents and grandparents would be, of, of adults, would be more um, effective. I mean, I thought people like myself, a boomer who lived through polio, would be able to communicate the value of immunization to now this generation's um, pandemic challenge. Uh, that wasn't the case. The most um, trusted uh, people were those who were the most um, emotionally close, like spouses, or like between a parent and a child, or among black men, a brother. Now, um, I don't know from the research, and we can't tell from the qual component of Bill's methodology whether it's the case, so I don't know if it actually means a biological brother or an adopted brother or just, you know, culturally, the way that one black man feels about another black man being a brother. I, I don't know if that's the case. That would be a great um, follow-up study to do. Um, uh, and, and the reason that I'm saying this is because what intrigues me is um, less about influencers and more about um, who's, who do you trust at the, uh, influencers in the, in the big picture, influencers in the social media influencers way of thinking about that, you know, influencers in the TV personality kind of way we think about that. I'm really interested in who's the influencer of the individual person at the point in time when they have to make a decision, you know, and naturally I lean in the direction of stories. So 
I want that person to be a good storyteller mm-hmm. uh, when they communicate the message about why this is important. Um, uh, you know, so that whatever the existing trust bond is, is reinforced with a message that is so easy to understand and so compelling um, that it will change that individual person's behavior in this case for, uh, for getting a vaccine. So that's the idea that the storyteller almost as importantly as it is the story. Get the Which story is, we've, right. We've heard that before, haven't we? You know, the, the, yeah. the person you hear the story from really matters. There is. And, you know, I can remember the first time that it really became apparent to me. Um, I was out with a friend. We were going to dinner and we were listening to Lake Wobegon. Uh, right and we pulled into the parking lot and could not turn off the car (laughs) we sat there to listen to the rest of the story because it was just so compelling and when i think about i um i was a girl scout uh we did a lot of camping uh outdoors and when i think about all those nights sitting around a campfire um and the stories that were told Or I'm going to say, I still remember the first speech I ever gave uh, when I was 13 years old in the eighth grade. And it was a story, it was about, I was studying astronomy at the time, um, and um, it was a story about how the ancient Romans and Greeks would go out onto their roofs at night and look up at the stars and see the constellations and tell great stories and share myths about King Cepheus and Queen Cassiopeia and, you know, and so on. Um, the, um, um, and how I got, a, and, and, and how I got an A <laughs> because the story made it much, I mean, the classroom was, was, uh, they paid attention. They listened. Uh, so What's interesting to me is that you are taking lessons, quote unquote, lessons in how to be a storyteller. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much you need. You're very, very good at telling and sharing stories. Just on this show, it's been really compelling listening to the stories and listening to the way you tell them. So I think your your um, teachers will have a lot of fun and will just be able to hone that craft. Maybe, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Glenna, we could talk to you about story and healthcare and children and messengers versus messages, you know, for, well, for, for hours, but, um, in the interest of, of respecting your time, I, I, we just want to say thank you. This has been great, Mm. but we do ask our guests to, um, you know, end the conversation with maybe telling us your favorite story. And I mean, I love the, the the rendition of your first speech and your your first circus and, your first circus <laughs> yeah being in government I'm sure you saw a lot more circuses but anyway um, do you have a favorite story you know I have to say right now um, I, it's the one I've already mentioned it's Rumpelstiltskin mm-hmm. and it's that notion about really understanding the demon. Um, right now I'm working, <clears throat> I'm working on my next book, which is called longevity pioneering, um, you know, building your personal village and what's lacking right now are stories 
that's that's the only that's the final piece I need to add. And I'm working with seniors to to pull those together from their own life. And now what I see is that in so many people, there is a kind of denial about where we're at as a country right now with our senior population. So we've never seen this in human history. Uh, we're gonna live another 30 or 40 years a healthy lifespan. We're gonna do it without a large close by family to help us out and without deep ties to social institutions, which means you've gotta build your own village. You've gotta look at what are your needs, what fears do you have that you may need to uh, protect yourself against, um, you know, and that means, you know, staring into the belly of the beast in some ways. And I will admit even myself sometimes, I want to whistle past the grave, graveyard <laughs> and not confront what might come uh, in my later years, but that's not going to help me. So when I think about the, the, the story now that's most meaningful um, uh, to me personally is, the, is, is Rumpelstiltskin. I better understand that demon. What is it? Because if once I know the name, I'll have far more control over it. And that is going to help me have a better uh, rest of my life in probably the 30 or so years that I have left. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate you being on Story Conversations. Oh, thank you for the invitation. Another brilliant conversation there. <laughs> yeah. So somebody, somebody who doesn't call herself a storyteller, I in know. fact, <laughs> wants more training from actors to be a better storyteller. And she should be training Christmas. other people. <laughs> exactly. So how exactly. do we distill that into a few points for our listeners? I mean, I guess the first one that really sticks out to me is the sort of simplicity principle. This idea of, you know, if you can relate to the five-year-old in anyone you'll be fine the fact that the emotional center of a, of a story it's humanity will always sort of carry through i love that you know and I, I think if you are trying to connect your message to internal or external audiences if you are working as a you know in the c-suite for example and, and trying to connect a message you really have to or working with should i say the c-suite and you really have to get that simplicity but it can't just be the simple facts it's got to be the heart to grab right. people and right. bring we, them in we 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 talk to clients about understanding their customers points of pain hmm. and it struck me when we were preparing for this chat that pain equates to emotion. It, mm. You know, if there's a point of pain, there's fear. Are we going to miss our revenue targets? Are we going to uh, fail to meet the goals of uh, launching a new product? Are we going to fail to communicate the value of the product successfully enough yeah. to get market share? That point of pain that we urge our customers to understand and their customers yeah. is the five-year-old in all of us. Yeah, and you've got to have your individual education plan for every audience member it's got to be specific it comes back to yeah. that, that old one it's got to be relevant and specific to that i can say that word right. now specificity <laughs> after two years of this i finally <laughs> get to say it properly <laughs> well we've heard it so often I know. that we realize I know. it's it's important yeah um you know when i first heard glennis speak that the whole idea that the messenger 
is as important as the message mm. was something that, that really stuck with me. I had never heard the example of hand washing in cancer wards for children. Yeah. And that no matter what you did to tell big old grown up adults that they needed to wash their hands, they needed to figure out the right messenger and the messenger was the children themselves. Um, And, you know, we talk about the messenger and so often our clients think, well, the messenger is the marketing department or the messenger is the sales team. Mm. But the messenger may be customer service it may be the guys in the warehouse. Yeah. Um, they can be the, as important a messenger, but only if they're armed with the story that's compelling. So yeah. when we urge our clients to train people on storytelling, it's not just the salespeople. No. <laughs> it's everybody in the organization being an ambassador for the most effective message and that really came through for me yeah i mean you've got to you've got to understand and know that message but then you've got to be able to translate it for you as an individual and how you connect to to other people um i guess the the third and sort of final point is this idea of the power of fiction and how Mm. fiction and fictitious stories you know I'm not a great reader of fiction, which is interesting, but actually once when I find a fictional story that hooks me in, I'm I'm, you know, obsessive. And I think it's the ones that have the greatest parallels in life, the ones where we can learn. And so this idea of fiction to teach graduate students in strategy and the way she's using it reminded me of Jeremy and Jeremy Sturt that we had in series right. one and the way that Jeremy's organization just had water, the way they use it to um, help people define a strategy, build a strategy, and connect a strategy. Um, you've got to embrace the conflict in a story, and so it makes perfect sense that you know the Army War College uses you know those top one hundred fictional stories to help them. You know that they get assigned. I think I think it, it makes perfect sense to me. And it's so how we great learn. that yeah, and it's so great that Glenna connected with that mm. um, and embraces it in her own work. You know, conflict's going to happen. And if you're not prepared with what your response to conflict is going to be, your strategy, you're, you're, you're going to fail. Um, yeah. That kind of led me to the, the takeaway that I found most memorable, maybe. Hmm. And when she was talking about her own, she'd mentioned it earlier in the conversation, but when we said, what's your favorite story? And she came back to Rumpelstiltskin. And practically speaking, when there's a business problem to solve, you know, her advice to people to basically out of the gate, identify the barriers, identify the obstacles, name them, and then you can put them aside. The whole idea of naming your demon you know once you name the threat to your organization once you really embrace it you can put it aside and you can start you can start crafting the solution the strategy 
that will help you overcome slay the demon. I mean, that's like <laughs> storytelling 101. Yeah, like. absolutely. Well, and she's such a delight. Yeah, I mean, she was, is just such a delight. It was fascinating and interesting. Um, yeah, a really, a really great conversation. Well, it's, you know, it's another great conversation that has immense relevance to our respective clients yeah. around embracing the power of narrative story and storytelling yeah um, and, the, and the ways you can use those you know using them it's not just as you said it's not just your salespeople that need that it's not just the people who pitch and present it's everybody in the organization understanding the core of the story you know it's defining the story defining the narrative understanding the structures of how that works and how you can then share it it's beyond just storytelling it's understanding right. those three key elements and so and it's not it's not frivolous <laughs> no it really really pay really attention isn't. folks it's not it's really important yeah and as um, always if you want to learn more about how we can help you you can visit iambic.agency for uh, iambic creative or griffin skeggs collaborative your website is griffin and skeggs Com. There we go. And we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear um, how you're using stories. Are you using them in exciting ways? Or is it an untapped market for you? Something that perhaps you've been interested in, but you think, mm, I'm not sure how we'd execute it. We can probably help you with that. <laughs> we, we can and we will and yeah. we'll love it. Yeah. And so until next time, we'll, uh, we'll see you on the next Story Conversations. Mm-hmm.